I believe the way things are is not the way things have to be. We'll only really make things better when we all come together, when we all work together, when we all join together, when we work out that we're all in this together. I'm telling you, you can't play politics with people's jobs and with people's services. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, In Conversation. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Gina Miller, a successful campaigner, entrepreneur, and leader of the True and Fair Party. Welcome to the podcast, Gina. Lovely to be joining you, Will. It's fantastic to have you on. Um, The first question I'd like to ask is, what do you think centrism is, and do you consider yourself a centrist? That's a very good question. Um... And I think over time, centrism is changing. Mm-hmm. I've always seen it as being part of a sort of common ground, more aligned with sort of pragmatism and being a balance sort of between social equality and and, and social uh, um, uh, advancement. Mm-hmm. As, uh, but I think things have shifted quite significantly and I'm not so aligned as I used to be. And the reason I say that is I think whilst compromise is great, um, I think where we are politically and socially, being in the middle of the road and sort of being hit by both traffic coming both sides, I think we need to now go to much more uh, bolder, uh, if you like, uh, positioning than being a centrist. What I mean by that is being much more steely in talking about systemic failures, crises and change. And I think the language of centrism in the past doesn't quite align with where I am now politically. Do you think that um, in terms of the way that centrism is talked about, that there are perhaps sometimes um, efforts to call people centrist as a means of an, an insult or as a, in, in, in a negative way? And do you think that that kind of harms people um, and politicians when they say, I'm a centrist, because you will get people from the, the um, left and the right who will use it as a a pejorative term rather than a um, simple and a fair description of their politics. You're absolutely right. I think where, where I, I say, and True and Fair Party, we say we're focused on right and wrong, not right and left, because we've got a very different society at the moment. It's very much more divided. There are bigger differences and heartfelt passions are on both sides. And because of that, if you're seen in the middle, it is used as pejorative as being woolly, lazy, um, you know, entitled. Mm. It it is that's when I said to you earlier about it's moved on. It's no longer just about being pragmatic and collaborative and compromising for the common good. It's now moved to a place of being seen as elitist, middle class, lazy, bully, as you called it. Mm. Um, I, I think we, we it's being used to attack rather than to compliment, and that's why I think it's really important that we fight back, if you like, mm-hmm. and have a much stronger uh, positioning than centrism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, of course, True and Fair is a, a, a new party, and, and starting a new party is a, a challenge because of the electoral system with First Past the Post. Um, it, it, it's often something that holds back smaller parties. How far has the experience um, shaped your views on the debate around adopting proportional representation? Do you think that because of the way that the electoral system is at the moment, that it makes it much harder for 
for, for smaller parties to to get through and, and, and that's why there needs to be a, a change to make the system a bit fairer for um, all parties rather than just the, the major parties. I think a big democratic deficit that we're facing is our electoral system. It is not just a little unfair, it's completely unfair. Because, you know, if you think back to 2019, that, you know, the Conservatives got 56.2%, I think, of seats with only votes of 436 I mean, they increased their vote from 2017 by 1.3% and yet had this huge majority. It is totally unfair. And I understand voters' frustration when they say, what is the point? Because my voice is not being heard and that, you know, it's dominated by a duopoly that we have in the two main parties. It is completely unfair and it does need reforming. And when people say to me, but, you know, what's the point of a new party when the system doesn't favor you? I remind them that the Electoral Reform Society started in 1884 and that, you know, just saying, oh, it's not the, it, you know, you won't make headways is not a, a reason for not trying. Mm. And the post-COVID and post-Boris Johnson, there is a completely different sentiment amongst voters. The them and us has never been stronger. People are looking for a different party, and we are very focused on targeting seats which are outside the Labour and Lib Dems top, well, top 150 for Labour and top 50 for Lib Dems. These are seats that have traditionally been Conservatives, where we've got egregious Conservative MPs sitting there who ignore the population, who ignore their constituents, and it's time that they were challenged. If those um, seats, they're not going to walk over to Labour and Lib Dem, that we need to give people an opportunity to vote for something new. And that's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. Do you think that um, the way people view the debate around the electoral system is that sometimes it can seem a bit complicated for the average vote? And that's why change has perhaps been a bit slow, is that some of the debates have you know, used terms that might seem a bit... Um, entirely remote from the from the average voter and so the issue that there is with the um, electoral system and how it affects ordinary people isn't always conveyed as well as it could be because the debate can feel a bit sort of mushy and a bit remote and and not as connected with the lives of ordinary people as perhaps it should be as a country i don't think we've been particularly connected to politics ordinary voter in the street has really been that involved in politics as i said the sentiment has changed post covid and post um, Boris Johnson and, and this conservative government, so you know, the conservative governments for the last thirteen years. But I absolutely agree with you. It's it's the marketeer in me will say that you know we've always trying um, to prove how clever we are, and I think a lot of the campaigns around proportional representation have been far too detailed. Rather than talking about the unfairness of the system, you can get into the detail into what sort of system further down the road. The first thing is to explain to people why the system is unfair and that, you know, they should want to have their voice, their vote represented. That's a much stronger argument than going into the detail, but very quickly people fall into the detail and it's just not going to engage anyone. A lot of the campaigns I've reviewed, I don't tend to do things without thinking about them. And I've reviewed a lot of the proportional representation um, campaigns that have gone on for the last you know, decades now. And I think one of the major faults is that they are focused on the detail, like what type of system. You know, we could talk about that if we get to there, but it's about opening the door to the debate and saying to people, this is about fairness. This is about your voice counting. Mm, absolutely. 
Um, another recent issue that has had a huge impact on voting, um, the forthcoming uh, changes to, to voter ID. What are your thoughts on these laws? And do you think that there is any real issue within the UK relating to voter fraud? There is no voter suppression in the UK. This is a solution to a problem that does not exist. And it is a pure political play to subdue those who people of the Conservative government think will vote for the opposition. It is unfair. It is, if you look at the forms of ID that are allowed between different age groups, it is totally discriminatory. It should never have been passed into law. And the fact that you've got the first election in May coming up where the majority of the populace doesn't know that they need ID cards. I mean, we know this already from our work that we're doing, that people don't know that they need ID. What that means is that they'll be turned away and the system will be even more of a of a democratic deficit than it's been with just first past the post. It is a nail in the coffin for democracy. And I think it's absolutely outrageous that it ever got passed into law. Mm-hmm. Do you think that what's happened is that the Conservatives have seen how the Republicans have used this kind of technique in America and thought, well, this seems to be something that's quite effective in certain parts of America. We're going to copy that and import it to the UK. There's so much of what they're doing, they're importing from the populist playbook of the US and other countries, not just the US. But the the US did have a problem or does have a problem. We have to talk about the UK. The UK does not have a problem with voter ID fraud or voter fraud. It just does not exist here. So they're fixing a problem, as I said, that doesn't exist. And they're manipulating it in a way that they hope will advantage them opposed to other parties. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, recently, the True and Fair Party published a paper on how we can address some of the issues with the shortfalls in our current Brexit deal. How do you think we can improve the Brexit deal to strengthen our economic relationship with the EU? And do you think that we're only going to see a, a, a greater cooperation between the EU and the UK with a changing government? I think what we see from the what's called the, the Windsor framework now are two positives. One is that uh, the language and the trust that's coming between the two, the EU and the UK has moved on from Boris Johnson and a lot of the um, ERG and a lot of the uh, ex uh, Brexit ministers who were basically just playing politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so good faith has been restored. And I think that could only be good for us as a country that we're trusted as being good faith partners and negotiators. Um, and I think it's fantastic that, uh, you know, Mr. Sunak can stand up and say Northern Ireland now has the most exciting economic um, area and that they have one foot in the EU and one foot in the UK. Well, Northern Ireland contributes 2.2% to our GDP. What about the other 97.8%? Come on, hello, can the rest of us have this? <laughs> it's called the deal we had before. So the the idea that this is some triumph that he's done is just so sticks in the crawl because it's actually, the, you know, it's what we had before. Mm. But being realistic about where we are now is that it shows that there are clauses within the withdrawal agreement and trade and cooperation agreement that can be used to fix a lot of the red flags and a lot of the damage that's being done to so many sectors of our society, our education, and our economy before uh, we do more damage. So I think the signal that is extremely positive is the tools are there to fix the damage. We just need a political will to do so. 
And that's what our addressing Brexit paper spoke about. So I'm obviously very pleased that uh, two weeks after we published our paper, that's exactly what they've done. How far do you think the public's attitude towards Brexit has changed? Because there's been polling uh, that has suggested that the public are perhaps having um, somewhat of a, a feeling of regret towards Brexit. Do you think that the mood around leaving the European Union and some of the problems that have been faced by people in the UK from leaving uh, the EU are becoming more widespread and that the public is turning away from the Brexit project? Yes, the public are, and all the polls show it. I mean, there's only actually three constituencies in the whole of the United Kingdom who would now vote for Brexit. Mm. Um, And what is, it's not the people saying that reality has kicked in. So the effects of Brexit, of a plan that never existed, and uh, an un- little understanding of the nuances and what the relationship is that we've built over so many years, 40, 50 years, the reality of that is hitting people in everyday life. So, of course, it's not theoretical anymore. And because of that, they're now realizing or waking up to the fact that we've lost so much. As I said, the reality, though, is that we've left in domestic and international law so it's not about rejoining, it's how do we fix the damage? And that will require politicians of whatever stripe to be completely honest with the public and talk about what needs to be fixed and also build a relationship with the EU that means that they trust us and they want to be across the table from us negotiating a better deal that benefits them and us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Centre recently worked on a paper commissioned by the Trimfair Party looking at how we can close tax loopholes for large companies. Which tax loopholes do you think the government should close? And how much difference will this make for the government's budget? It was very interesting because uh, soon after our paper came out, we know there was a one from, from the Labour Party, which was talking about, you know, that the uh, that the that their policies of, of, of completely scrapping non-DOL would bring in X amount of money. Well, that was based on the fact that they thought that every single person who was paying, who um, would be likely to pay non-DOM um, uh, taxes would actually pay, which is nonsense because it's not going to be everybody that pays that. So our paper with the center think tank was much more pragmatic. What we talked about is uh, strengthening some of the loopholes when it comes to like, transparency on offshore, on trusts. We talked about um, tackling, yes, the non-DOM status, but creating a tiered system where people actually can pay in at different levels, depending on how long they've been in the UK. And this is much more pragmatic than 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 oh, sort of one size fits all or a black and white solution. Um, and one of the things I'd say is that the, the, the actual conclusions of our report were astonishing because we've been contacted by lots of people who are saying that, um, you know, the, the idea of a tiered system, the fact that the government could close interest loopholes, which would provide another 400 million, camp down on umbrella um, agency tax evasion and avoidance that would raise another 200 million, uh, the fact that there are uh, loopholes in um, HR, HMRC when it comes to tax avoidance, that would bring in another 2.8 billion. You know, these are, these are things that could be done very quickly overnight. I think in so many of our politics at the moment, we go to a utopian rather than utilitarian. And our paper was very much about what we could do to raise another 5.6 billion by just closing the loopholes that already exist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do, do you think that 
perhaps when people think about tax loopholes, they don't always necessarily um, think about how they can directly uh, affect people's lives and how closing them uh, it can be a, a positive thing. For example, in the um, holiday sector, the current um, mortgage interest um, tax loophole incentivise is landlords to um, have homes as holiday lets rather than as um, long-term uh, private sector rentals. And a change there would, of course, hopefully um, help more people to um, get into either to the private rented sector or onto the housing ladder. Do you think examples like that, really concrete um, things, are, are important when discussing how, how tax loopholes, closing tax loopholes, can benefit the public? Because it can show just how much um, damage having these loopholes open can do to ordinary people. Yeah, I think it's really important that we look at the things that can be fixed. Because And people, politicians often look for the big headline fix or the big headline announcement, uh, you know, closing all non-doms, whatever. But actually, there's a lot of small things that exist that if they change, such as you say, how landlords are taxed, the idea that how, um, you know, business rates work, how, the incentive to keep shops closed, all of these things, or to not look at a change of usage, all of these together could create changes that together create a stream rather than a drop. And that's where I think we need to look at. We're always looking for these big headlines. If we go around systemic, systematically closing loopholes and looking at where there are gaps, we can create change that affects people in every community almost in, in, a, in a matter of months. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end uh, of the podcast. It's been great to have you on, Jean. And I have one final question to you. Um, the Academy Awards are going to be uh, coming up soon. And of course, there's a great deal of competition between different actors and directors for the coveted awards. So my final question to you is this. If you had to pick any actor, um, living or dead, to play you in a film of your life, who would you pick? My gosh, Will, where did that one come from? Um, who would I pick? Goodness. Um, Sophia Loren or Gina Lalabrigida. Those are two absolutely They're the right colour to be me. And living, living would be um, probably Halle Berry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, those are uh, uh, three fantastic choices. And I'm sure that if uh, somehow they were able to, I'm sure that they would love to be able to to play you um, in a film. Thank you once again uh, for coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you and about True and Fair, uh, where should they go to find out more? Trueandfairparty.uk. Uh, all our information is there and we're you know here to answer any questions, but we'd be delighted if people come and join us. But uh, thank you, Will. And I say again, that was a naughty last question. <laughs>